This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Well, I can truly say that I have not done that in a hot damn minute, and it was very weird, and I'm really out of practice. (laughs) Also, if you pay attention to the uh, Instagram channel or the YouTube channel, Instagram channel? You know what I'm talking about. Um, We recently moved, well, and by recently, I mean like seven months ago, but I no longer have the podcast closet, and I feel naked and exposed, (laughs) but... We will uh, keep on keeping on because that's what we do on this channel. That's what we're all about, BB. So we're getting back into the swing of things because exactly six of you have asked for the podcast to come back. And you know what? All it even took was one. (laughs) I I truly didn't think anybody even listened to this and kind of was just going to let it simmer into the abyss. And y'all asked for it. So now y'all are going to get it. So I actually have one that's kind of exciting to talk about today, and I went through and rechecked my research from beforehand, and so I I think I have something very good and beautiful for y'all, and I hope that you all are as entertained as I was researching this. So, as we love to say, without further ado, because there's always one more ado, I have no updates, I have nothing to go off of right now, I am just barely holding on. <laughs> by the one piece of sanity that I have left. So uh, we are here now, things are good, things are okay, and we're gonna flash back to uh, 1906. So if you'd like to come down on a journey, I'm gonna take a swig of water and we'll get right into it. And as always, I lied because there is always one more thing to talk about. Uh, And I already forgot what it was. No, I didn't, (laughs) I I didn't. Uh, So as always, if you're new here, The podcast, if you haven't noticed, is just an unedited storytelling time from me to you, which used to be in the podcast closet, which was literally my closet. Um, Now I'm in my office, which is way bigger and much less comfortable, and I I don't just get drunk in my closet anymore, which, if you've never done that, it's actually kind of fun. So now uh, we, we lost that aspect, but things are still good. This is always going to be the unedited, just me talking shit to you, at you, through your phone or car, wherever you listen to this. Um, This is just, let's just talk about shitty people for some time and go over why they suck to remind people that uh, you don't envy serial killers and you do not idolize them because that is gross. And here on this channel and in my life, we do not accept that uh, idolizing serial killers is gross. That's That's the... that's the story. That's the thesis. Okay, so just getting it out of the way, uh, we are not idolizing anybody. We are merely here to talk shit, and three minutes in, we're going to go, and we're just going to talk about this now. Okay, so today we're going to talk about Anna Marie Hahn. Um, if you've never heard about her before, uh, she's quite a doozy, so we will discuss her, and uh, this is podcast episode number 44. So Anna Marie Hahn was born on July 7th, 1906, in Bavaria, Germany. Uh, she was the youngest of 12. Yes, 12 children, but five of her older siblings had died by the time of her arrival, which, I mean, I know 12 seems like a lot, but at the time, like eight, late 1800s to early 1900s, that made a lot of sense. Uh, kids were pretty much used as employees and workers at that time, and also life expectancy in children was a lot lower back then, so 12 children really wasn't that crazy. Her father was a man named George Filster. He was relatively successful, uh, successful, 
Well, I mean, yeah, if he had 12 children, I guess he was. Uh, he was a relatively successful furniture manufacturer, and because of this, his family was pretty well off um, in finance and in just general status. Uh, they were well regarded as a family. At the age of 19, Anna became pregnant. She had a son whom she named Oscar. Anna told everyone his father was a Viennese, which as in born in Austria, uh, Vienna, Austria, anywho, uh, a Viennese doctor named Dr. Max Matschke. He was supposedly a well-known cancer researcher in the area, but records show no sign of his existence. So here is where the story varies a little bit based off of where you get your information. Uh, so scenario one is in 1929, Anna was sent to the United States because of her quote unquote distasteful behavior, i.e. having a bastard son. Um, Oscar remained in Bavaria with his grandparents and the whole thing was swept under the rug. Or scenario two, um, so alternatively, she had married the Viennese doctor and had Oscar. Uh, the family came over to the United States together when Oscar was four, and Anna would have been 23. And Max, the doctor husband, died shortly after their arrival. Uh, the next part of her life and the rest from now on stays pretty consistent information-wise until the end, but I did notice that there was um, some confusion here, which is actually kind of interesting because it may be explained later, but I, I was unable to piece the, these pieces of information together uh, officially. So, then, uh, yep, Anna had an aunt and uncle, uncle who lived in Cincinnati, Ohio's German district. Their names were Anna and Max uh, Doschnell, which is why I think that's kind of weird that they have Anna and Max, who supposedly came to the United States together from uh, Germany, you know, so it's like, uh, or did they just get confused because her, her aunt and uncle's names are Anna and Max, and so she had a husband named Max, and that's where they got this Max thing from? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, that's just speculation on my part. So Anna, young Anna, our soon-to-be uh, not-so-great-of-a-person Anna, went to a dance at the Hotel Alms, which still exists and has a website, in case you're ever curious to go look. Um, so she went to this dance at the Hotel Alms, and she met another young German immigrant named Philip Hahn. He was a telegraph operator, and might I remind you, from the, the second scenario, either Max never, so Anna's husband Max, either he never existed, or he died right after they came to the United States. So at this time, she's single, she goes to the Hotel Alms, she meets a guy named Philip Hahn. He was a telegraph operator, and they fell in love quickly and were married in 1930. At some point, and this is so highly dependent on which scenario you, you believe to be true, Anna either goes back to Germany to retrieve Oscar, or he is just with her the whole time. I, I do not know. There was no answer to that one. Uh, so Philip and Anna dreamed big and saved their money. They wanted the success that is often promised when coming to America. They really wanted the American dream. Together, the couple bought two delicatessens just a couple blocks down the road from older Anna and Max's home in Cincinnati. Uh, they were the owners and operators of the business. Anna's Aunt Anna and Uncle Max ultimately passed away. Uh, I don't have any information on how or when, I just know that they left the house to their niece and her husband, Philip. Around this time is when most people believe that Anna starts getting money hungry. So between 1930 and 1936, there were three fires on Anna's insurance books. The first one occurred at one of the delicatessens. It was small and caused uh, very little damage thanks to insurance. Anna pocketed about $300 at the time, which be, would be a little over $5,000 in 2022. 
Anna, on more than one occasion, tried to take out a life insurance policy on her husband, Philip. She was asking for a policy that would earn her over $25,000, which would be half a million dollars today. And uh, in the event of Philip's death, and thank goodness that man was smart and he refused. Smart. Good job, Philip. Uh, Shortly after this disagreement, though, Philip fell mysteriously ill, and even though Anna protested heavily, he was taken to the hospital by his mother. Philip survived, but the relationship suffered, and eventually they split up, Um, and I think they remained married, though, and then they went their separate ways. Which, good on you, Philip. That's very suspicious. If, you know, if Chris, who's my fiancé now, if you keep up with the the (laughs) Cabernet and True Crimes, you know, business, so my boyfriend is now my fiancé, And if he ever tried to take a $50,000 life insurance policy out on me, like against my will, I would definitely have some problems with that. And then also to fall mysteriously ill afterwards, which seems kind of even sillier. I wonder if Anna secretly did something because if Philip still fell mysteriously ill, even though he didn't have that life insurance policy on him, what would be the point of getting rid of Philip would be my question. But obviously some people in the world just are not playing with a full deck of cards. And that's that's where I'll leave that. So the couple split. And despite her complete lack of training or any qualifications to do so, Anna became a visiting nurse for elderly patients. Her first client was a man named Ernest Koch. He was in his mid to late 70s and doing pretty well uh, health-wise and financially. While Anna was his nurse, his health declined, and Ernest died on May 6th, 1933. And he left Anna a whole-ass house in his will. The second of three fires happens around now on June 2nd, 1935. Uh, It was unclear which house burned down, whether it was the one that she and Philip had lived in, which was her aunt and uncle's, or if it was Ernest's house. I do not know. Uh, Either way, though, Anna nets about $20,000 in today's money for the damage. Her next client was a 72-year-old man named Albert Parker. And I I may forget to mention this in my script, but uh, Anna liked to target other German immigrants. Um, So usually she chose elderly German immigrants who were kind of alone and were mostly like well off. So she would befriend these people. So, sorry. Uh, He was a retired railroad worker. Uh, He passed away under Anna's care on March 27th, 1936. Although he didn't leave her a will, Anna had, and I'm using air quotes here, borrowed a thousand or so dollars from his estate. She said that she had left him an IOU for the money, but that was either misplaced or essentially disappeared when the time to pay came. $1,000 in 1936 would be just under $20,000, or yeah, $20,000 today. So the final fire on the insurance books happened after Albert is deceased on May 20th, 1936, and nets around another $20,000. Uh, Jacob Wagner is her next client. He died under Anna's care on June 3rd or 5th, depending on where you read it, 1937. He left $335,000 in today's money to his niece, Anna, which is just an asinine amount of money. He, his niece, to his niece, Anna. Uh, yep. Jacob Wagner's official cause of death had been listed as heart failure. Imagine meeting a man and getting him to like you enough to leave you $335,000. That's just bananas. 
so after that, as and the whole thing is, is like, Anna's racking up so much money. Like, these figures are huge, right? $20,000 each time she tried to burn her house down. She got another $20,000 from Albert. She got $335,000. And these are in today's figures, but still, homie, (laughs) I mean, you have pocketed so much money. And, you know, up until very short, uh, sorry, up until very shortly, she's going to keep getting away with it. So at what point, this is definitely one of those situations where Anna's definitely not a good person, as I'm sure, I don't think I need to tell you that, as I'm sure you've noticed, but she, her greed gets the better of her, right? Because if she'd stopped now after pocketing $335,000, if she'd have stopped now, she'd be good. She would have never gotten in any type of trouble, but greed got the better of her and that wasn't enough. So she, after this money, which I personally would have just been sitting easy, bought myself a little farm out in the middle of nowhere and just lived the rest of my life comfy and cozy because you would never have to work again with that kind of money, at least in my head. (laughs) I plan on never retiring. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of hard for me to tell, you know, like I just fully plan on never being able to have the amount of money it would take to just like coast and live forever. But you know, that is neither here nor there. Uh, But yeah, I just, I had to take a break there to take a drink of water and then I forgot what I was talking about. So I'm just going to end that, whatever that rant was then. Uh, So her next client was uh, George Selman. He was 67 years old. He died almost exactly one month after Jacob Wagner died on July 6, 1937. He left Anna, brace yourself, $295,000 at the time of his death. So Anna, based off of her insurance claims and all these guys she's met, in 1936 is pretty much a millionaire. I don't, I didn't back calculate. I have like funds, but yeah, but I'm saying generalization, she would be a millionaire, the equivalent in today. Like, homie, just let it be, right? Fine. So yeah, she, she gets $295,000 from George Selman at that time. And after that George, Anna worked for a second George named George Heiss. He was one of her clients. And I don't know if that's like some daddy issues because her dad's name is George. I mean, my dad's name is also George, but I don't know if like she just got this George thing or just a bunch of German dudes who are named George. I do not know. It's neither here nor there. Don't know why I told you about that, but fine. Uh, He stated, this George Heiss stated that Anna had served him a beer that quote, house flies drank from and they died almost instantly, which... If you got that many flies in your house, but I think, I mean, well, I guess good, don't drink the beer, but also if you have that many house flies in your house and they're drinking from your beer pretty regularly, that's a little concerning on a different level, but that's also neither here nor there. Uh, he refused the beer that Anna offered him and removed Anna from his service and George Heiss survived, but he was left partially paralyzed from Anna's previous attempts to kill him. Which, there, there there, was no plot twist there. I assumed you all were on board that you realized that all these men were dying quite suspiciously and that Anna had to be the, the one who was doing it, yeah? <laughs> I didn't think I was zooping you on, on those thoughts and, you know, cool. So, the nail in the coffin for Anna, with absolutely no pun intended, is the death of yet another George, George Obendorfer. Which, once again, the coincidence... 
I don't know if there's just a lot of immigrants named George or if she just had some major daddy issues, which is also fine. There's nothing wrong with daddy issues. Uh, just don't murder people because of them. Go to therapy. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, George, Anna, and 12-year-old Oscar, because he's 12 by now, even though despite despite all this killing Anna is doing, um, she has managed to, you know, raise Oscar to be relatively... You know, a, a decent human being, it appears, by all means, and later he'll be still pretty decent. He is just, you know, growing up, trucking along, mur- his mom's murdering people, which if I, well, I guess he's 12, but here's another sidebar. If I were Oscar, like, it's kind of, I don't know, if I were Anna's friend or if I were Oscar, I mean, because, like, kids are smart. They're smarter than you think they are. And so you've got you know, this kid who his mom has just all of a sudden kind of in the course of two years become a millionaire. Like, don't you think he'd ask some questions? But maybe not. That's fine. So George Obendorfer, uh, he, Anna, and 12-year-old Oscar went by train to Colorado Springs together under the pretense under the pretense of seeing a ranch that Anna said she owned, although of course she didn't. On August 1st, 1937, George died shortly after the trio got a hotel in Denver, Colorado, where Anna stole about $5,000, which is a little bit under $100,000 today, from him after he died. And it was an unauthorized use of his bank account, which is just bananas that you would try to steal $100,000 from somebody ever. Like, that's just so much money to try and, like, if you took five bucks out of somebody's pocket, like, you know, that's not cool, but also it's five dollars. If you try to just write a check for yourself for a hundred thousand dollars and you just think nobody's going to notice that, especially when you're so rich already, it just seems kind of silly. And people weren't suspicious because apparently that was just, apparently this George guy had enough money that, you know, $100,000 going missing from his bank account really wasn't that big of a deal. Um, And people weren't suspicious until she refused to pick up the tab for his funeral. I mean, fair. Which they demanded an autopsy after, uh, so they had noticed the unauthorized bank transfer. And during that autopsy, they found arsenic in his system. Police waited for Anna to return to Cincinnati. So police questioned Anna as soon as they could. She lied about her relationship with George, uh, saying that she never even knew him. His family stated that she had been more or less his girlfriend. Anna denied that and said that she simply met George when she got on the train. Uh, She had said that she noticed that he was a fellow German immigrant and that the two had struck up a conversation. Then she said that she had actually met George a few weeks earlier, but only once or twice, and she knew of him um, and that she recognized him on the train, and it was solely a coincidence that they were on the train together. First things first, Anna, honey, don't change your story that quickly. (laughs) I mean, well, we already know you're lying first off first, but you decided you were going to steal $100,000 from somebody and get away with it. You, You didn't even come up with a good backstory as to why you guys were traveling together. That just seems like a real rookie move on her part. And also, yeah, first first rule of any, don't change your story. Even if you're editing the truth, don't change your story because it's it makes you look really, really guilty even if you're not. Now, Anna is definitely, definitely very guilty. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt about it, but we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep on keeping on. So it didn't even matter that Anna tried to lie once or twice because both of those lies were blown out of the water when she was recognized from signing herself into the hotel the three of them stayed at. At some point, and 
this was kind of weird and a little bit confusing, but I'm going to try to tell you guys the best that I know. There was an account um, slash police report that there was a bag of stolen diamonds taken from the hotel and that Anna Han was seeing trying to hawk them at a pawn shop somewhere in Colorado Springs, which is kind of really not Anna's MO, but I could also definitely see her doing it. So, I mean, it's highly possible, but who just... One, who just has a bag of diamonds at a hotel? How did Anna know they were there? And why would she have stolen them and trying to hawk? Like, why wouldn't she bring them back to Cincinnati to hawk them? Because, I mean, maybe she, she's also just a really bad cr- criminal. So, I mean, I guess, never mind. I answered my question. But who, how did she know about the diamonds is my main question. Because I know why she didn't do anything else. She's dumb. You know, okay, but still. So, the diamond police report and the the deceased man at the hotel garnered a large amount of interest from the police in the Colorado Springs area, which is why they began looking into it as hard as they did, since it seemed like it all led back to the same person, who was Anna Hahn. So you have Cincinnati police that are quite interested in Anna, and then you've got the Colorado Springs police, who are also very interested in this potential murder, murderess and diamond thief, which, once again, I... that really didn't fit the bill for the rest of this crime, but apparently that's why they started looking into her. Listen, I I know as much as you do. So after the police started looking into George Obendorfer's suspicious death and asking around Cincinnati, police were re- able to realize, and I think this was Cincinnati police, not the Colorado Springs police. I think they were really only concerned about one little piece of the one little piece of this puzzle and like Cincinnati police cover the rest, but that's just my own speculation. Uh So police began to realize that there were several more old German immigrants that had died suspiciously and left all their money to Anna. And at some point during the investigation, Anna admitted to working with Jacob Wagner, who had literally died two months before George, and there was that other George in between, and like I said, Anna had a real big thing for George's, and so now you've got all these people who have been deceased, and they, like, police can tie every single one of these people right back to Anna Marie Hahn. I'm sure by the deposits into her bank account. Forensic uh, banking is a thing, right? Yeah. So forensic accounting, that's the real word for it. Uh, so Anna probably, you know, did not cover any of her tracks and it would have been really super easy for people to be like, oh, red flag, Anna is just doing all this. Uh, police thought it was weird that Jacob Wagner would leave his entire estate to Anna Hahn, which... I agree, it's a very strange thing for him to do that. And so when they asked around his neighborhood, they learned that Anna had approached Jacob as a long-lost niece, which is what we heard. Jacob knew that he had no existing family members and that it was physically impossible for Anna to be a relative, but he thought that the extra hand around the house might be helpful. To the investigator's surprise, friends of Jacob Wagner had also been very suspicious, and by the time the homicide got by the time homicide got involved, so like the homicide detectives, They had already gotten through most of the red tape to get Jacob's body exhumed. So, obviously, well, first of all, poor Jacob Wagner for thinking he was being helpful and trying to help this, you know, poor, confused soul, right, Anaheim. And then she comes in taking advantage of the fact that this guy may have kind of been lonely and wanted some help and Anna just fucking murdered him. (laughs) Like, it's, 
like, it's so upsetting, but it's also so awesome at the same time that everybody in Jacob, everybody that Jacob knew and everybody in his street were like, no, Anna was weird. We don't think it was right that he just left everything to her. And so we need to investigate it. So, I mean, as much as it is awful and horrible that it happened, it's still really cool to see that the community really bounded. That's not the word I'm looking for. Nope. It's really cool to see that the community really came together with each other and helped get through all this already. So it's, it's, the active community is really uh, interesting and I like the way Hive Mind works and it's just kind of cool that they weren't, they weren't ready to stand for their friend Jacob to, you know, get played like this. Um, so Olive Kohler, who, her story, I don't really She's kind of weird, but she she's a big part of this. But she was someone who had known Anna, and I think it was a very peripheral relationship. Like, she knew someone who knew someone else and was a neighbor. Like, so she knew of Anna Han and Olive. They knew each other. How? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, she had actually gone and talked to the detectives while they were asking around. She said that on two occasions, Anna had brought her ice cream the second dairy treat that Anna had made made Olive so sick that she had to be hospitalized. She stated that when she returned back to her home, a bag containing an undisclosed amount of money and jewelry had been stolen from her home. I don't know when that happened. I would assume uh, probably around the same time that she was with Jacob Wagner would probably make the most sense. But so that actually makes the diamond thievery kind of plausible, maybe, but also I still don't know how she knew somebody had diamonds in her bag unless she had, like, those really cool old x-ray glasses and could just see things, which I know aren't real, believe me. But, uh, yeah, so so you've got Olive that's giving a testimony as well. Olive, and then you have the other George who she was not successful in killing, and then Olive, she also was not successful in killing, and now you've got these people who are able to give testimony to say, like, yeah, no, Anna is not a good person. So shit's about to go down for Anna. <laughs> There's no nicer way to say it. She, she Shit's hitting the fan. Detectives had more than enough evidence for search warrants and planned to exhume all of Anna's clients. Each one had been killed with a different poison, and police said that in search of Anna's home, they found enough poison to, quote, kill half of Cincinnati. George Selman had been killed with croton oil. I looked into it, so croton's a type of plant if you're into plants, um, and I did a little research onto that, but... It, it, there's a couple different novels that came out before these crimes that, I mean, basically talked about croton oil being used to make somebody really, really ill. I think maybe it, it, its main purpose, it wasn't explicitly said this, but you know, like Epicac to like make you barf or like make you get, like if you eat something you're not supposed to, it's supposed to like help you get rid of that. But if obviously you're using croton oil, like especially in lethal dosage, dosages, it's not going to work out for you. Uh, so George Selman had croton oil in his system or whatever the, you know, that's not how they test, whatever, fine. They look for broken down parts of croton oil, but that's a different, that's a different rabbit hole to go down. Uh, Jacob Wagner and George Obendorfer had been killed with arsenic, which is a little more conventional for women especially, um, and Ohio wanted to take Anna to trial ASAP before Colorado could. And I don't know if that's only because uh, George Selman, Jacob Wagner, and George Obendorfer were the ones that they were able to get toxicology reports on. Um, it sounded like they had way more evidence, but maybe they were just going on the three that they, they had very physical, like, we have toxicology reports. There's no other way that these guys had been 
<laughs> accidentally killed. So maybe that's why they went to trial with these three specific people. Uh, Anna Marie Hahn was arrested on August 10th, 1937 for the death of Jacob Wagner, which was the case they had the most evidence on, especially from like, you know, testimony, um, witnesses, evidence, the whole thing. Her trial started on October 11th, 1937, and the jury for her trial was made of 11 women and one man, which is, I kind of thought was interesting, and, and you'll see why in a minute, but so 11 women and one man on her jury trial. It was found that Jacob Wagner had enough arsenic in him to, quote, kill four men. In a weird turn of events, they were allowed, for some reason, uh, to bring up facts from another case, which... I, I'm per 99% sure you're not allowed to do that. Like, you're not allowed to present evidence if it's not relevant to the case that you're currently talking about. But, I mean, it was also the 30s, so stuff was different then. Uh, it was never fully disclosed as to why, but Oscar testified, uh, which was her son, Oscar testified that George Obendorfer's health began to decline on the train to Colorado Springs, uh, and I think the fact that he had been arsenic was told as well. So that's why I thought it was weird that they had her own son, they had Oscar testify about George Obendorfer's death during the trial for Jacob Wagner. Right? I, I, that, that bit seems kind of weird to me, but I don't think you can do that in court now. But <laughs> back then, this was allowed so the prosecution can make their case, is what I'm assuming. Which, once again, not that they really needed it necessarily, but the handwriting on Wagner's will was matched to Anna Hahn. And she was pretty much put down because her motive was greed, right? Uh, once again, still don't know why they did that. That seems kind of like a weird path to go down. I think they had everything they needed. You know, actually, it's kind of possible that maybe they thought they had everything they needed to convict her on the death of Jacob Wagner, but everything else was basically like, we need to double down on everything you guys need to know about this woman before. You know, in case, like, so the the jury wouldn't be simpler on her and, like, nicer to her because she was a woman, especially when there were women on the jury. So I think that's maybe why they were like, no, 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 no. This definitely in no way was an accident. She's a serial killer, and she does it for money, right? Uh, the state presented Albert Palmer and Jacob Wagner's internal organs. Also weird for the time. I thought it was wild to show that with a jury consisting mostly of women. Seems a little odd, but nevertheless. Uh, and the case was rested on October 29th, 1937. So the defense's case started on November 1st. It only had one card to play, and it was Anna. She and her testimony were the only piece of evidence. Anna did great on the stand and had no issues during cross-examination, and they rested their case three days later. Which, if, if the prosecution has all this evidence... I mean, so I was watching a documentary once that was saying, and I think it was the Casey Anthony documentary, where the prosecution gets up there and they do everything they need to do and they say everything they need to say. And all the defense has to do is try to poke enough holes in what the, the prosecution say says to give you a reasonable doubt. I think it's really, really ballsy for the defense to only go up there with Anna and let her go on the stand and do her testimony being the only piece of evidence, right? I don't think... I don't think they were set up for success, if that makes sense. Uh, so the jury deliberated for two or three hours, depending on whatever account you're reading, and they returned with a verdict guilty with no recommendation for mercy. Unfortunately for Anna, and something that the jurors didn't realize would make history at the time, no recommendation for mercy meant an automatic death penalty. So 
there's no way of getting out of that. If you say guilty, it's just guilty. But guilty with no recommendation for mercy does, in fact, mean automatic death penalty. She had been con so convinced. So this is the wild part, too, is that Anna was so convinced that she would be found innocent that she had her bags packed to leave before the verdict was even given. So she just assumed she was going to go home. On November 10th, 1937, she was brought back in front of the judge to learn her fate. When asked, she proclaimed her innocence, and the judge responded with, and I'll quote, It is ordered, adjudged, and desired by the court that the defendant, Anna Marie Hahn, be taken hence to jail in Hamilton County, Ohio, and that within 30 days hereof, the sheriff of Hamilton County shall convey the said defendant to the Ohio Penitentiary and deliver her to the warden thereof, and that on the 10th day of March, 1938, the said warden shall cause a current of electricity sufficient to cause death to pass through the body of said defendant, and the application of such current to be continued until the said defendant is dead. And may God, in his infinite wisdom, have mercy on your soul. On December 1st, 1937, she was moved to the Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus. She was not executed on the day, March 10th of 1938. However, uh, her case went through the legal system and all the way up to the Supreme Court. However, they agreed with the state of Ohio on December 6, 1938, and her execution was scheduled for 8 p.m. the following day. Anna had been convinced that she would not actually be killed until they began to strap her into the electric chair, which is really heartbreaking, honestly. I mean, Anna wasn't a good person, but that is kind of wild that she, she convinced herself so fully that she was not going to be executed. Um, she was begging for help during all of it. Uh, Anna was the first person to be executed in the electric chair in the state of Ohio. Uh, she was 32 years old, and on December 7th, 1938, at 8.13 p.m., Anna Marie Hahn was officially pronounced dead. After Anna's death, Oscar Hahn, her son, was placed in a foster family in the Midwest. The newspapers and all parties involved, so the court system, etc., all kept a promise with Anna. They used the money from Anna's estate which is interesting because it was none of it was hers and all of it was stolen. So kind of interesting that they didn't... I'm just curious where all that money came from and whether they paid back the families that, you know, I don't know how that money came to be or how much money was left, but they used the money from Anna's estate and funded Oscar's education and never, ever released his real name or whereabouts, which that's actually really cool. That was the one thing Anna was really concerned about from what I've read was that she was super concerned that her son was going to have to live a more difficult life because of who he was and what she did. Um, but no, the, the newspapers and everybody kept it super secret, which was actually really cool on the newspapers part that it was never really shared with anybody. And all that was known of Oscar is that he lived a very normal life and fought in the Navy during World War II. So he lived a regular old dang old life, which is very awesome for him. It's nice that he didn't have to pay for his mother's crimes, which I think is personally really cool. So on December 7th, 1938, the same day that she was executed, she was buried in the Mount Calvary Cemetery in Columbus, Ohio. And that friends is the story of Anna Marie Hahn and her killing that she wasn't like the best at <laughs> which I mean I don't know like I said had she stopped earlier I don't think any type of suspicion would have been raised but she just got too greedy and got too crazy with it and shit went downhill real quick for her she went out like a <laughs> like a quick flash of lightning but, uh, yeah, so that was the first True Crime Tuesday back in a while. Um, it feels good to get it under the belt, you know, just get it done. 
um, it's always kind of interesting coming out of a hiatus and getting back into the recording mindset and, you know, doing this again. So thank you for listening. uh, And I will see you all next week. Thank you.